0: Third to the last book of the New Testament is Third John. And we turn now to the third epistle of John. The elder unto the well beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Demetrius hath good report of all men, and of the truth itself, yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee, but I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee, our friends salute thee, greet the friends by name." This far we read God's word, I call your attention to verses 3 and 4. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. One of the basic principles underlying the text and the sermon today is to know truth in your head is not the same as walking in it, in your heart. So the question with which I begin this afternoon is, what role does truth play, beloved, in your life? Yes, we know it. We've been born and raised in reformed churches. We have been taught in catechism. We have heard many sermons that have proclaimed truth. We know it, but do we love it and walk in it? The epistle brings the question to the fore. It does so because it speaks of three men. There is, first of all, Gaius, of whom the sermon this morning or this afternoon will focus on, of whom it said that he walks in the truth, and the next section of the epistle, verses 5 through 8, which says that he, and we like him, must be fellow helpers to the truth. Evidently, this Gaius is a man who is an example to us. The third man, mentioned in verse 12, is Demetrius, of whom the truth bears good report. Evidently, he is a man who loves truth and truth loves him. But the second man is diatrophies. And good things are not said about diatrophies. He loves to have the preeminence. He does not receive John and John's epistle. And there are other ways in which he shows he is not a godly man. Three men. And the fundamental concept or idea in Third John is truth three men in the church in relation to truth what role does truth play in our lives now we don't know a lot about these three men let me suggest what seems to be the scenario although john doesn't tell us in detail it seems that there is a church and in that church this diatrophies this evil man is prominent is he the pastor We do not know. Is he an elder? We do not know. Is he not an office bearer? We actually hope he isn't. But is he not but a prominent man in the church? We do not know. But he's controlling the church. He does not receive the brothers. These are traveling missionaries. He doesn't support the work of the preaching of the gospel. He forbids people to support those preachers of the gospel. And he casts out of the church those who would support the preachers of the gospel. He is an evil man, and he's influential in this congregation. Now there's Gaius. We don't know what role Gaius had in the congregation. Gaius, though, was a godly man. He loved the preaching of the gospel and the work of missions, verses five through eight will tell us, so that he supported that work to the best of his ability And yet, people are following diatrophies. Well, that happens when an influential man calls the shots, when it's a matter of I've got to be in the right spot at the right time, liking the same man and liked by the right man so that things go the way I want them to. Then sometimes we let an evil man call the shots and we're more concerned about his favor. It seems that was happening in this congregation. And here's a Gaius. A godly man, setting the right example, maybe not getting noticed, and John says to him, as it were in this epistle, hold your own. If that man is so influential that all are following him, you hold your own. The Lord sees what you're doing, and you're doing it rightly. And it must be, to bring the third man in, that this Demetrius is the one who's going to bring The epistle. Now, that isn't stated. It could be I've not portrayed it accurately, but it's the best I can do to put the pieces together. Three men in relation to truth, one hates it, and he's the big guy in the church. So, in what relation to truth? Do you stand? Does your sitting in a pew of a Protestant reformed church now say you truly love the reformed faith? You love the Christian faith? You love the reformed faith? Or is it just where you were born? Or for some other circumstances have come here? And it isn't so much the truth that matters but you get something else out of it. What is your relationship to truth? That I say is the big picture question. Now we come to Gaius this morning. Uh, we know very little about Gaius. John loved him dearly. If in the text, uh, rather in the book, we have the name truth or the word truth mentioned five times, so I say that's the main concept. We also have mentioned five times Gaius's. Being loved of John. The apostle is underscoring the point. I love you. And I love you in truth. In the second place, the relationship between John and Gaius is that Gaius is a spiritual child of John. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. He's not a biological son, evidently, but a spiritual son. And so, to those of us who are Gaius-like, Who walk in truth comes now the word of the Holy Spirit through his apostle. You are beloved, not because you walk in truth, rather, your walking in truth gives evidence. You are beloved of Jesus Christ. I call your attention to the text under the theme Gaius walking in truth. Notice first Gaius's godly walk, second, the brother's testimony, third, John's great joy. Well, there's a concept here, and it's truth. We have to know what it is. We've got to flesh it out and put some meat on the bones. I'm going to say four things about truth in connection with this text. And if in the future, the Lord willing, I come and bring you more sermons from 3 John, You will see that in every one of them, there's an additional component to truth that comes out as the epistle goes on. But in the first place, we have to see that truth is the objective, unchanging revelation from God to his people. Truth is not just what I think. It is not just my opinion and feeling on a matter. There is not truth for you and truth for me and will let each of us have our own truth. There is only one thing called truth. God decided what it is. And that's why it doesn't change from country to country or from culture to culture and from age to age. It is an unchanging reality. This is not the way you are taught in the colleges and universities today. It is not the mentality of society in which we live today. For society in which we live, if you think you have truth to the exclusion of others or in a better degree than others, you are arrogant and you can't be a child of God. That is not the way truth is presented. Here, the un changing revelation of God to us. Young people, adhere to it, follow it. Number two, if you were to say, well, that truth that is made known in the Bible, what's the essence, what's the very heart of it, what would I say? Well, this is what truth is. The answer is the existence of a sovereign, gracious, triune God who saves sinners and therefore the corollary, the necessary corollary, the incarnation, the coming in the flesh of the eternal Son of God. That's truth. We just confessed in the Apostles Creed. A triune God and a Christ who is our Savior. Now in our day and age, What is scoffed at, maybe in addition to the idea of a triune God, but especially what is scoffed at, is that this Jesus man who lived 2,000 years ago, great prophet, good moral instructor, the idea that he's God, that's scoffed at today. That's denied. He was a mere man. It's the flip opposite in John's day. People acknowledge that Jesus Christ was God. They didn't believe that his human nature was, was a true human nature. You go back to 1 John 1. When John says that which we have seen with our eyes, we've heard him with our ears, we've handled him, we touched him, our our our, our hands touched him. John is saying right at the outset Jesus was truly man. You go to 2 John 7. Many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. That's the part they deny. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. And so the apostle John, as he sets forth truth, is pointing our attention to the very heart of it. Jesus Christ is, God, do not deny that, and truly man, do not deny that. And sinner. You see why you need this, God, to reconcile us to God and truly man because man has sinned. He therefore, the Son of God, took our flesh upon Himself so that He could go to the death of the cross and reconcile us to God. And That's part of truth too, not just the existence of a God and of a Christ but a reconciliation of God and sinners, friendship, covenant. The third place we have to see that truth is absolute and therefore it opposes the lie. I'm going to use a different word as an adjective of truth. It is antithetical. And you say, well, what is antithetical? Uh, children, you know something about antithetical, even if you'd never heard the word, because you know that it gets dark every night, and when it gets dark, there's no more light. Well, there might be moon, there might be stars, and of course the street lights will be on. But take the streetlights off and put clouds over the stars and let it be a time of the month when there's a new moon, so there is no moon, you don't have light, you only have dark. And now, come morning, you see the sun beginning to rise in the horizon, and the darkness is gone. Antithetical means two things cannot be at the same place at the same time. And if that's true of light and dark, that is true of truth and lie. This truth may not be mixed with lie. This truth cannot exist alongside of the lie. Where you have the truth shining, the lie is gone. I don't mean Satan is gone and there's no more attempts to deceive. But I mean in our heart and in our mind, the lie is gone. And where you have lie, truth is gone. Antithetical. Now why do I bring this up? not just to say more things and fill some time. We're dealing with the situation in John's day. Why were there some people saying Jesus is not man? Well, it's because there was an error called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was really a, a pagan Greek philosophy. It existed before Christianity. And according to these Gnostics, uh, physical, material things are bad. Spiritual, immaterial is good. Our goal is to escape from the bad, to get above the creation. Our goal is to live outside of the body, if I could put it that way. That's good, according to Gnosticism. Now here's this philosophy of Gnosticism, and along comes something called Christianity. And some people say, we can sort of put the two together. In a way, Christianity that speaks of sin and sin affecting our body, and it speaks of our being delivered from sin, we can interpret that in Gnostic ideas. And so you have Christian Gnostics against whom the Apostle John is writing. He has them in mind, and he's saying, take the philosophies of the world and try to mix them with Christianity and you do not now have truth. You still have a lie. It's a lie with a Christian veneer on it. But truth is purely the word of God, the teachings of God about Christ unmixed with all these pagan ideas. Isn't that relevant today? What is theistic evolution? The idea that there is a God, a triune God, a sender of Jesus Christ, who superintended the evolution, the coming into being of the world, but he did it over a period of millions of years. What is that but the taking of a pagan, unbelieving philosophy and trying to put a Christian veneer on it? And I only use that as one example. Today, many Christians, professing Christians, hold to a form of Christianity which is mixed with unbelieving ideas. And it's a temptation for you and for me as well. But truth is pure, unadulterated, antithetical, the word of God. Now, I've said three things about truth, and they've set the stage for the fourth because the text speaks of Gaius walking in the truth. That's the fourth thing we've got to see. Truth is something in which we live. This takes a little explanation. The apostle didn't say according to which we live. That could be true, too. But in it, how do you live in truth? Well, evidently truth is an area, a sphere, a spiritual sphere in which we are and in which we live and in which we praise and glorify God and in which we conduct all the affairs and business of life. It isn't that I was born in that sphere. I was born, as were you, in the lie and in darkness. As we are by nature, we were born in the lie and in darkness. And a gracious and merciful God said, I have created this person to the praise and the glory of my name. Here she is walking in darkness. I'm going to put him or her right in the middle of where truth shines. In fact, I'm going to do something even more amazing. I'm going to work in his or her heart so that truth is in him or her. And then here she will live to the praise of the glory of God's grace. Walking in truth. Let me use an example. You are on one of those dark, cloudless, uh, rather cloudy, starless and moonless nights. You are deep in a forest. Or even if out in a meadow. You cannot see one foot in front of you. You cannot see what animals there might be. You cannot see what pit or hole you are about to step on. You cannot see the dangers. You know they are there, but if it is up to you to deliver yourself from them, to run away from them, you cannot do it. You see over in the distance that there's light, and you say, what I need to do is get in that light. If somehow I can make my way over to that light, now I can see my way forward. And then wonder of wonders, because you can't get to that light, You see that light move to you and it shines on you and you can see your way step by step. You are walking in light. But I really didn't just change the figure when I say walking in light and walking in truth are the same thing. For to walk in truth is to walk in the light of the revelation of God. That is what Gaius was doing. That's the point of the text. Gaius is walking in truth. It means he was living his life in the light of the revelation of the word of God. It doesn't only mean that he spoke truth and that you didn't expect him to lie. It includes that. That's not the fundamental point. All of his life was lived in light of the word of God. He did not let the lies of the world and the philosophies of unbelievers deceive him. And the power by which he did that was the work of God in him. Notice what John says. It isn't just that thou walkest in the truth. The brethren testified that the truth is in thee. Evidently, Gaius is walking the way Jesus Christ walked. It's in First John two verse six, that John says, "He that saith he abideth in him, he whoever says that I abide in Christ, ought himself also to walk even as he that is Christ walked. For there was nobody who more fully and perfectly walked in truth, lived in light of the revelation of God than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself. But Gaius." Followed the example in the power of his risen Lord. So clearly was he walking in truth that John said this in verse 2 about him, your soul prospers. I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health. I hope all is well with your body even as I know that your soul prospers. The word translated prosper is to make good advance. In a journey in the providence of God my wife and I made good advance yesterday in a journey we left home in the amount of time you might have expected we came to the border and again in the amount of time you might have expected we got from the border here there were no accidents that we were involved in nor any of others that slowed us down there were no car issues that slowed us down, nor did I make the mistake, as I'm prone to, of getting on a highway and going in westerly direction when I belong going in an easterly direction. You see how in an earthly journey there are so many things that could happen that would lead us to say it's not really going well. Now, How is it with our soul? Our soul which has heaven as its destination and is making progress toward heaven, but is it? (coughs) Or when we buy into the philosophies of the world, or when we give in to sin, suddenly we find we've made a detour and we're on a whole different road going in a whole different direction. It is not going well. Gaius's soul prospers as he walks in truth. I'll just make this comment a moment wasn't the main purpose of my preaching on this text. Evidently, there is something not meritorious or conditional, but evidently there is something about the way I'm walking that relates to my knowledge and confidence of Jehovah loving me. But the big question now is how? How can this happen? How does a a sinner find himself walking in truth? And I began to explain that when I said, imagine you're in the forest and you see this light and now the light comes and shines on you. That's the grace of God. The grace of God for us and the grace of God in us are the twofold explanation of how. Let's develop those points. We were born in Adam, dead in sins. Our soul cannot prosper. We cannot walk any way other than according to the power of the prince of this world, but God. That's always those two words. They found them in Ephesians 2. Those two words are always the beginning of a glorious gospel. But God. But God chose From eternity. But God sent Jesus Christ in time to redeem us from sin, to take our sin and guilt away, to renew us unto Himself. By the Holy Spirit, God worked in us the new life to see and know truth. Jehovah God put us on this pathway and shown truth also in us. And that's part of God's grace. God's grace, salvation, is not limited to forgiveness. Oh, it includes. What a precious component. But there is something God does to humans, elect redeemed humans, in addition to forgiving. He renews. He sanctifies. He transforms inwardly. He changes our will to speak of in the words of canons, head three and four, articles eleven and twelve. He changes our will so that whereas we will to do that which it was evil, we will to do good. He changes our understanding so that whereas we only understood evil, we understand good. That explains a walk in truth. And now I come back to the question that I asked at the beginning of the sermon. Is that the effect truth has on your life? You see, it doesn't take grace. Oh, it takes a providential gift of God, but it doesn't take grace necessarily to learn truth. A person can memorize the Heidelberg Catechism A person can memorize the essentials book or other of the catechism books. A person can read the Bible and intellectually get what's being said. That doesn't take grace. Proof, there are many people who go to hell who know what the scriptures teach. What takes grace is to love it and that it sink down and that it form our life. Now John knows that Gaius is walking in truth because this is the testimony of the brothers. I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee. So at this point let's see who these brothers are. I alluded to it in my introduction. You go to verse 7. These are men who, for His name's sake, that can only be Christ's name's sake, went forth, they went away, taking nothing of the Gentiles. They are men preaching the gospel in other cities. So convinced are they that the Lord has called them to preach the gospel in other cities, that they go forth, and when they come to heathen, unbeliever, Gentiles, They don't take anything from them. They don't charge them to hear the gospel. They don't tell them, you owe me food. You owe me clothing because I have served you by preaching the gospel. No. But what happens is that they find a man like Gaius. And Gaius says to them, you'll come stay at my house. I see your sandals are worn out. I've got a pair for you. You need salve for your feet. I've got some for you. You need food tomorrow when you go forward on your journey. I'll give it to you. And that's the very concrete way now in which Gaius was walking in truth. His care for these missionaries, and that's the brethren who went forth for his namesake. He also cared for another group of people, verse 5 says, and those were strangers people whom he didn't even know, who still professed to be Christian. Gaius loved fellow believers, even those whom he did not know, and thus showed he walked in truth. These brethren, having come back from their journey, wherever they met Gaius, and coming to John, tell John how the journey went. And they say, you know what, John? There was a man named Gaius all we have to say about Gaius is good things. Not just because the food was so good. Not just because the sandals were such great quality. First of all, the man's love for the gospel was an encouragement to us. And that's true of a preacher and true of a missionary. One who himself is to be enthused about the gospel and to bring it to other people finds that as other people live in accordance with it, the preacher himself is encouraged. There's a mutual benefit to the hearing and the preaching of the gospel. Now there's a practical point I want to make that maybe moves just a little off the main point of the text, but not completely, and that's this. Brethren, person or group of people A. Come to John, person B, and they talk about Gaius, person C, Gaius not present. Do you ever find around your dinner tables or in conversations with other people that a name comes up and you begin talking about a person not present. And what do you say about them? It's rather easy to make them the humor of the evening. Speak of his or her foibles, weaknesses. It's very possible to emphasize his or her sins because if we talk about somebody else's sin we look a little better in our own mind and maybe I can look better in your mind if we remember who isn't quite as good as we. And all of these are wrong ways to talk, aren't they? I am not walking in truth when I speak things like this about my fellow saints. I might say, but it's true, he said that, but it's true, she did that. Okay, why is that actually a lie? Because my Lord and Savior died for him or her also. And I'm not bringing that point out in my conversation. I'm looking at him or her as from the viewpoint of his or her old man of sin. I'm looking to put him or her down. And instead when we talk A and B about C not present could we to show that we are walking in truth speak of how that person is an encouragement to us in our godly walk because God's grace is manifest in him or her. That's walking in truth. And that's what the brothers do. In this way, they promote a communion of saints rather than break down and tear at the communion of of saints. The apostle John is telling Gaius now. He's writing a letter to Gaius, telling Gaius what he heard about him and what joy that works in his heart. I'm not up to the third point yet, but that's part of the practical purpose of him relating him. But in the process, let's go back to person A, speaking with person B about person C, because something just shifted. Now person A is off. They're gone. And person B immediately texts, emails, calls person C and says, Do you know what I just heard about you? So what is it we say? What did I just hear about you? And is this something I really want to tell you? Is it godly for me to tell you? Am I walking in truth by telling you? Am I promoting your walk in truth by telling you? You might say, I just heard this and this and this and this. And in the end, we're going to bring person A down again because of what he or she said. But what John does is very different. I heard something good about you, Gaius, and I'm going to tell you to build you up communion of saints. Let's see that that's an effect now of walking in truth. If there's a theme to the second point, I I want it to be that. In the way of each one of us walking in truth, speaking well of another, the body of Christ is built up. Diotrephes is not our focus tonight. But he was tearing down. There was no communion of saints when you do it Diotrephes way. John and Gaius are building up. What relationship does truth have to you and to your life? Do you build one another up when you're with each other as well as when you're talking about each other in their absence? And else is John. Third point, that gives me joy. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. In verse 3, I rejoice greatly because you're walking in truth. In verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. He's not just restating. There are two ways in which verse 4 is an advance over verse 3. On the one hand, verse 3 was about Gaius specifically, and verse 4 about my children generally. The first is a specific application. The second is a broad principle. It isn't just that John is interested to hear about Gaius. All his children are a concern to him. And the second way in which verse 4 is in advance is that verse 3 says, I rejoiced greatly. All right, it made him very happy. Maybe there are 10 other things that make him as happy. Maybe there are four things that make him happier yet. No, says John in verse 4, I have no greater joy. This is number one. Now, is that true for you and me, that to hear that others love and walk in truth is joy number one? With that, we're going to have to ask the question, what is joy? Just as in the first point we stopped a while to explain what truth is, let's do that with joy. Not quite at much length, but there's three things. First of all, let me explain briefly what joy is and then elaborate in three ways. Joy is the activity of the regenerated child of God in his heart, your heart and my heart, according to which we delight in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he is doing in saving his church. That's joy. You'll notice first of all then to elaborate that it regards what Jesus Christ is doing. That's not so often the joy we think we have and the joy we strive after, is it? The joy I want is a joy knowing that my belly is full, I had a fun weekend so that I can get back to the work week tomorrow saying, that was a blast. No, those aren't the joys that truly characterize the Christian life. Joy, true Christian joy regards what Jesus Christ at the right hand of God, my Lord and Master, is accomplishing. And isn't it first of all for me? It is first of all to the praise of the glory of His grace in saving His church. Our joy does not depend on the circumstances of our life. Number two, this true Christian joy is and regards what the Lord is doing for others. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, some other people, not me, some other people are walking in truth. The true joy of the Christian is that the Lord is saving a church, and one day when I'm in heaven, I'll be with that church, and every other brother or sister in Christ has been made to walk in the same truth and preserved in that walk until his or her dying day. Not me but them. Third place, though, true Christian joy does say, and the Lord used me. He didn't have to. I wasn't fit spiritually. It's a testimony of His grace and power, but the Lord used me. I have no greater joy than to hear that. My children, walk in truth. And what's implied in that is I taught them and the Holy Spirit blessed my instruction of them for their own salvation and benefit. Just see how different true Christian joy is then from what we think of as joy and understand that this true Christian joy can exist alongside of tears and grief and sorrow and prayers and fervent petitions because not all my children are maybe walking in truth, but I still have some that are, and that gives me joy. It's the joy of a parent, but in the text, it's the joy of a pastor. It's the joy of a pastor. It's the joy of the professor who goes around to the different congregations and sees in them That God is preserving his church and there is a striving to walk in truth. And it's a joy of saying at the end of the day, oh, there's much trouble. There are many things we could complain about. Many evils we can and must even be aware of and could discuss. But in the end, the Lord is saving his church. Now some lessons from this. And the first gets to the role of the parent and child and the teaching of the children by the parents and it's a word to the children and to the young people. What will make your mother and father cry more than anything is if you say to them, truth? You're calling what you taught me truth? I'm not having it. Stop walking in that and you will see grieving parents. That's the power, even though John is not the physical, biological parent of Gaius. That's the power and the reality that the text speaks of. Likewise, You want to discourage the hearts of your elders and deacon and pastors? Tell them. Faithful men, that's an assumption being made at the moment, faithful men, men who love truth, that you don't want to walk the way they're walking. That will discourage them, not so that they give it all up, They'll find their joy in the Lord, but the text is saying, if you cast off truth, that affects the body. It's a reality we have to face. And we have to face it because there's a danger that comes at that point when it's my child who says, I don't want that truth. I'm talking about the child then who rejects, really, the Christian faith and the Reformed faith and Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son of God come in the flesh and therefore a child of whom I have to say, I don't know his soul's prospering. I don't know his soul is alive. I am prone as a parent to say, this joy isn't working right now. I have to find a different joy. And so to the parents, don't do that. The broader principle is this, even if there be a child or children not walking in truth, even if there be some in the congregation who leave saying, I don't love truth, I don't think you have truth, God will always enable us to see that there are others who love the truth and live according to it. And we play a role in their lives. Call them my children or call them my brother or my sister. We play a role in their lives. Our worship together, our encouragement of one another is our walking in truth and promotes the edification of the saints and the church and therein, therein is our joy. Let's remember that. Yes, we pray for and we grieve with parents who know the grief that the text contrasts itself with. And to them the word. Commit your way and your erring loved one to the Lord. But keep walking yourself in truth. Finally, who is the I in the text? And the answer is, of course, it's the Apostle John. I rejoiced greatly. I have no greater joy than you say it is the Apostle John. But does he speak for himself? Is he just one man simply writing to other humans? Is this not the Apostle John? Is he not writing by inspiration? Is he not telling us a word from God himself? And let's end on that note, that in the text also is a declaration of our heavenly Father to us, his children, saying he has no greater joy than to hear that we walk in truth. God's love for us from eternity now does something to us that no earthly parent can do. He makes us walk in truth. He not only teaches us and says, but it's up to you to implement it. God gives us his son, son for us, and spirit in us, and we walk in truth. But go to Ephesians 4 verse 30 a moment. Grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby you were sealed unto the day of redemption. In other words, If the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead, as he is, then it's possible for me to grieve God. How do I grieve God? The child of God grieves God when the child of God says, I will not walk in truth. At that point, our God who is sovereign doesn't wring his hands, doesn't just pray, doesn't say, I have no more joy. Our sovereign God says, but you're my child. I will chasten you, and I will chasten you again, and I will chasten you as much as I have to, but I will, by my irresistible grace and powerful spirit, make you, in the end, walk in truth. He will do it. And that's the goal and the purpose of his saving grace in us. He grieves when we do not walk in fellowship with Him. He delights in fellowship with us in truth and in holiness in Jesus Christ. Now, what role does truth play in your life? Is the fundamental truth of which you know is that having been redeemed in Jesus Christ, God is become your father? Does that affect how you and I live? May the text and the principles of the text and the gospel embedded in the text have that effect on us. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven to the praise of the glory of thy grace, give us to live as thy children, walking in truth, speaking well of thee, and of thy saving work in us and in others, and in that way enjoying a fellowship and friendship that none other can have, enjoying joys that earth cannot afford.